Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. So without further ado, um, I will ask each of the panellists to briefly explain their background and how they came to be involved in mental health. So Christian Lane, can we please start with you? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, my name is Christian, uh, obviously, and I'm very happy to be sharing the stage with um, everyone else. It's a really, really great that uh, we've all come together to discuss a really important topic. Um, I'm coming at this from the context of a law student that has worked and not so much work, but sort of written quite extensively and created quite extensively within this topic. So back in 2018, I started a website which um, allowed students to share their uh, mental illness stories and mental health experiences through studying law school very easily. It got adopted by the university and it led to um, me having the really great opportunity to write for LexisNexis um, on the subject. Um, so yeah, um, I look forward to sort of sharing not only my experiences with uh, mental health, but also the experiences of other law students I've worked with, as well as um, legal professionals in the space. Jessica, would you like to uh, give us your background and explain how you became involved in mental health, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, firstly, thank you for having me. Um, I was very touched to get invited by PLN because I remember it from when I was a law student. Um, so I studied a double degree at um, Monash University in Medicine and Law. Um, during my time as a medical student, I was um, uh, elected to be the president of ANSA, which is the national um, representative body for medical students at the time. Um, and at about that time was when Beyond Blue released their data about suicide, suicidality in the medical profession, which showed that uh, medical students and doctors have a, a really high rate of um, both depression, anxiety, but also um, suicidality. And as a result of that, we launched a national mental health campaign. Um, which ended up being run, ended up being quite successful and run at 20, all 20 medical schools. Um, that's six or seven different projects within it. Um, and including a Blue Week, which is awareness raising, and then a number of other initiatives. Um, and then through that role, um, kind of got appointed to a couple of advisory committees and then got asked eventually to join the board of Beyond Blue, um, which is pretty cool. Um, so my work with Beyond Blue at the moment um, is really exciting because we do um, obviously have you know, quite good access to resources and um, capacity and can do some really exciting things. Um, I'm involved in overseeing the, um, the Way Back program, which is a post-suicide intervention program, which is pretty cool. And I've also been involved in the, um, the Doctors Mental Health program, which is a, initially within Beyond Blue, and then I'm currently on the steering committee for the federal government for, the, um, uh, for the, their Doctors Mental Health Initiative in which we kind of developed a framework, which is pretty cool as well. So, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Jessica. Um, Stuart, can you go next, please? Sure. Um, thanks for organising this great event this evening. I'm really looking forward to hearing the insights from the other panellists as well. Uh, my background's in architecture, so I studied 
um, two degrees in architecture, bachelor, master's with honours. But a lot, of, a lot of that was focused around humanitarian work and poverty alleviation and then the mental health outcomes through that as well. So working with young people that were experiencing homelessness, um, building, designing and building shelters with them and then creating education, training and employment programs with them as well, where we built 30 houses with these young people and got them trained in plumbing, electrical and carpentry, where they would have been on a pathway to go into youth incarceration and prison otherwise. So that was 10 years ago. Then I did a lot of human rights work in northern Mexico for about four or five years, working very closely with the community and governments there. So a lot of poverty and breaking human tra trafficking trains going um, up to feed the, um, the US food economy. And then done a lot of work in Nepal and Germany with the Alternate Nobel Prize Foundation or the Right Livelihood Award in Sweden. So I've been working with them for about two or three years on different um, international and structural law issues too, but also community grassroots outcomes too. But currently I've been working a fair bit in family violence with the Salvation Army. So with mental health and reducing anxiety, suicide attempts and overdose attempts. Uh, with them down in St Kilda. So that had some great outcomes with the, the garden to plate program and holistic health care with those young people, quite at risk. And more recently, um, I'm working with Michael McGarvey also on the talk this evening, establishing the Ecological Justice Hub for Jesuit Social Services in Brunswick, where we currently employ 19 to 21 people working across four different teams and three different sites, soon to be probably, yeah, going up to 25. Um, but we work very closely with the Department of Jobs, but for mental health outcomes um, with the program, you'll be hearing more about this evening. So that I'll pass back to you, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. And Michael, can you please tell us about your background and how you've become involved in mental health? Yeah, thanks, Tristan, and uh, thank you for inviting me, everyone. Uh, I also work alongside Stuart at the Ecological Justice Hub in Brunswick, which is a permaculture garden and uh, a, a teaching and training uh, centre for um, ecological and environmental skills and activities. Recently, we've shifted to providing food for people holed up in Moreland by the, by the virus. And we've got some insights into how that's impacting on people. But uh, my background is as a lawyer, I was a solicitor for 23 years and a partner of a law firm. And then um, I was CEO of the Supreme Court for a while. And then for, for seven, eight years, I was um, legal services commissioner and CEO of the legal services board. So I was the regulator of the legal profession. And uh, we found that um, so many um, disciplinary breaches and regulatory failures were very closely connected to uh, mental ill health in the legal profession. It's a very uh, 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 common condition. Um, uh, it's getting increasingly um, um, brought to the surface and discussed more openly than it may have when I started practice in the early 1980s. And so perhaps I can bring some insights to this discussion from both an ecological and a legal point of view. Fantastic. Thank you, Michael. Just before we get into the discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians 
of the land on which I work and live and we all work and live and to recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay, their respect, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So let's go to Jessica. What has your general experience been so far at Beyond Blue? Yeah, so I guess, um, as I said, I joined about five years ago. Um, I was uh, the youngest director on the board by a couple of decades. Um, so that was an interesting experience. Um, but it's, as I said before, it's, it's pretty cool to be part of an organisation who has a mission that very much aligns with you know, the things that I'm passionate about. Um, it's also pretty cool being part of an organisation that's quite innovative. So um, as I mentioned before, a couple of our programs are, um, are you know, early pilot, quite experimental programs, I guess, um, in terms of um, novel approaches to addressing mental ill health. So they have the capacity to be, to be really adaptive and flexible. And a great example of that is, you know, the, um, the number of programs that have uh, received, you know, rapid funding and rapid growth since um, the pandemic started. So, you know, the coronavirus support line, um, as well as a kind of very rapid expansion of some of our lower intensity interventions. So we have New Access, which is a kind of a digital um, low intensity intervention for mild to moderate um, disease, uh, as well as, as I said, the Way Back, which is a post-suicide intervention. And both of those have been kind of rolled out rapidly um, and quite successfully. Um, our online forums had a huge surge when the pandemic started. And so um, we've been able to kind of adapt and um, evolve that to be able to cope with a much, much more increased demand. Um, and then, yeah, so I think, I think in that way, I'm very fortunate because the organisation itself is, you know, has, has the capacity to be able to respond in that way and be innovative in the way that it responds. So, and then, and then there's also obviously the advocacy work that Beyond Blue does. Lots going on then. Um, in April 2020, Beyond Blue announced it would be operating the support service. At that time, what did the organisation foresee the major challenges of the coronavirus pandemic to be? Yes, yeah, so I think, I mean, none of it's probably rocket science. I think a lot of people here could probably predict that, um, you know, the challenge, the mental health challenges associated with the pandemic. Um, the combination of increased restrictions and decreased kind of liberty, um, as well as that correlating to a decrease in accessing of services. Um, and then all the sequelae that come from the economic impacts of a pandemic, I think. So all of that together meant that, you know, we were quite ready, I guess, and anti anticipating a significant spike in mental illness. It's been interesting the way that that's actually evolved. Um, we've had a, you know, a very significant increase in our um, demand for services. Um, but we do expect that there will be probably a six to 12 month delay. Um, where the surge will kind of continue to increase as those other issues come to the fore. So, for instance, you know, the job seeker package and other kind of um, economic and other interventions will have been relatively effective at mitigating, you know, some of the, um, the risk factors that result in mental illness. Um, and so, as a result, we think that the, um, there will continue to be spikes over the next maybe up to two to three years um, as 
we see the consequences of that. So as people, for instance, lose their jobs or you know, we haven't really seen what the impact is to the property market um, and housing, we know that the extension of the protections um, for tenants and you know, that will eventually expire. So trying to kind of, I guess, plan how to be able to respond to the community's needs um, as they continue to be you know, variable. Were there any particular organisational challenges that needed to be overcome to get the support service up and running and ensuring that it was going to be effective? I think, I mean, I, I don't know about everyone else, but um, working from home is incredibly challenging. Um, you know, a large proportion of our workforce have um, children um, trying to do homeschooling whilst also, you know, do your normal nine to five job is near impossible. So I think um, the challenges that we face as an organisation to try and um, you know, wade through the pandemic, probably similar to those faced by a lot of other organisations, I guess we carry the increased burden of not only trying to maintain the status quo, but you know, significantly um, evolving and increasing our capacity throughout that. So it, it's definitely been, um, <laughs> been a challenge for our staff, but we've done um, a number of pulse checks. And I think, um, as I said, being part of kind of a, a, a solution in that respect is also very protective. So, you know, people, are, um, the staff at Beyond Blue are just, you know, really excited to be able to offer these services to the community um, and help in a way that's really important at the moment. So despite the fact that there's been, you know, considerable challenges, as I've outlined, everyone's kind of pulled up their socks and gotten right into it. And so we haven't, you know, we've, we've seen quite effective outcomes. And has has the kind the the type and quantity of demand differed much from what you would have expected at the start of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I guess so. Yeah, probably to some extent. Um, I think that we probably thought our services would be hit harder. Um, so a lot of the um, the low intensity interventions. So we have everything from like I said, um, new access, which is like a digital response um, right through to we have like counselling, um, we have kind of life coaching in some of our services, um, right through to kind of full psychological support and referral. Um, and, you know, the, the ultimate extreme, which would be the Way Back program, which is, you know, post-suicide intervention, really high complex, you know, high acuity um, intervention. So it's, it's really a whole spectrum. Um, and I think what's been interesting is that we've seen a surge in the um, in the online forums and the kind of more low intensity um, support services, which is kind of what we expected. Um, but as I said, I think we're all kind of bracing ourselves that the um, that the worst is kind of yet to come in that regard. That um, what we'll see is over the next six to twelve months and probably the next two years that those numbers continue to go up. Um, what's really interesting is that um, we, I mean, the coronial data from Victoria released only recently actually shows that there hasn't been a spike in suicides, um, and which I think a lot of people thought would happen in the context of a pandemic. Um, the reason for that, I, I think it's, you know, obviously it's very hard to speculate, but um, it's, I guess that's a bit of a surprise because the general kind of burden of mental illness has gone up. Um, the other thing that we've seen is a decrease in presentations associated with suicidality, and that's a very, very difficult um, piece of data to 
um, to dissect because we know that people are generally more reluctant to present to hospitals and particularly emergency departments for fear of contracting the virus. So it's hard to know to what extent um, the decrease in presentations correlates with a broader decrease in prevalence of suicidality, which is probably unlikely, um, or whether there's just a, a, a lower number of people presenting to services. Hi, Jessica, it's Christian here. Yeah. Um, I thought, so first I thought I'd just um, clarify to the other speakers that at any point, if you want to jump in and comment or ask a follow-up question, please go for it. Um, we want to keep this sort of as organic as possible. And the way we're sort of running it is that Tristan is sort of asking um, some set questions that we agreed upon before the discussion. And my job here is to just sort of like, when I can, when my and my um, brain serves me up a question, I hopefully it's smart enough and I, and I go ahead and ask. So um, for Jessica, I just had an, a question for you. Obviously that data there is, is pretty confusing and I imagine quite complex to dissect like you were saying is, you know, we're kind of expecting mental health outcomes to be worsened given the pandemic. But I think that um, a lot of the reason why that is, and that might just be my perception, but there is relatively speaking a good amount of support um, from the government in the sense that um, for a lot of uh, people, um, they're getting enough money to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. That's just sort of my experience and just from talking to people and sort of from the news I'm reading. But obviously once that goes down, that's gonna maybe where we're gonna start to see some really, really um, negative health impacts, not just on the mental health scale, but on all the other factors as well. Do you have an opinion as to like the population that's gonna be hardest hit by um, you know the upcoming uh, slashing of the 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 subsidies um, by the government, or do you think that it's it's a bit more complex than that? Yeah, great question. I think um, I think it's always it's always difficult to speculate. Um, I think that the as you've correctly pointed out, there's a number of protective risk factors. Like there's a number of protective factors, um, and there are a number of risk factors, and so it's about when those risk factors kind of you know, come to the fore. So as you've outlined, I think the financial or the hardship-based risk factors are probably not being seen as much yet and um, will probably become more apparent um, when we see, for instance, if there is a financial collapse or um, a financial crisis or property collapse or whatever, you know, is being predicted. And as you said, when the welfare supports also um, start to get minimised, I think there's definitely definitely likely going to be an increase in the, that, as I said, hardship risk factor. Um, I think the risk factors that are already existing um, represent a number of kind of demographics that are currently at risk and, um, you know, violence, domestic violence is a really big one. So we've seen a significant increase in the um, numbers in terms of domestic violence. Um, and that um, is definitely correlating to an increased uptake of services. Um, another one is um, people from LGBTIQ backgrounds that um, often, you know, the support networks available are not in their homes, um, particularly individuals who are, you know, at home with their family where it may not be a supportive environment. And the other one is people who kind of live alone. So a lot of people from um, a number of backgrounds, a number of populations, we can already identify as being at risk. And then I think as we move forward, it'll, it'll be similar. It'll be, you know, as... Um, as you said, um, as welfare becomes less available, um, then that will mean that those individuals who are more likely or more at risk to suffer financial hardship are probably therefore more likely to be at risk. Um, and then the, it's very difficult to interpret the effect of loneliness. So we know that um, social isolation is a really significant risk factor for mental illness. 
Um, it's something that I think we can all relate to in the current pandemic, um, but knowing at what point that will trigger mental ill health is really challenging. Um, we actually, we did anticipate it would be higher than it is at the moment. So, um, you know, whether extending a lockdown will have any effect, I think is really hard to tell. Um, but people that live alone are definitely at risk in that respect. So, yeah, I'm I, not sure that there's particular groups as much as um, there's, it'll just be a matter of waiting to see, you know, how in the next few months um, different uh, target demographics are supported or suffer more hardship. That's great. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it is a pretty complex question. And I think we're all sort of waiting um, to see how it all uh, comes together at the end. Because, you know, I know just from, you know, my housemates that as soon as the news was announced a couple of days ago, they all, um, you know, really took it heavily and, and are all dealing with the consequences of, you know, having to spend um, that extra bit of time in lockdown in their own way. And um, they're quite lucky in the sense they've got they've got support from, you know, the rest of us and friends and family, but obviously there's a lot of people, you know, I'm thinking in particular like migrant communities or, or refugee communities or mm -hmm. people that don't get access to typically that kind of support um, might, might, um, yeah, um, might take handle it differently. But um, yeah, I just thought I'd um, indicate to Tristan, maybe we could move on uh, to some of the other speaker questions. Well, that's perfect timing because Stuart and Michael, you've, you've had a lot of experience over the last several months with disadvantaged communities and particularly um, migrants and people who are going homeless. Could you um, give us some idea of what your contact has been with them and um, what your reading is of the, the mental health situation in those communities? Yeah, so we deal with it on a few different levels. We deal with it on a participant and individual level, people dealing with hardship and getting them the right support around them with uh, mental health support from Moreland City Council and their referral networks and also connecting them with a nutritionist meal and human connection with physical distancing, obviously, um, and care packages and, and garden boxes going out to them now, which is incredible. Um, but there's also a few, you know, we've got to articulate that message up to, you know, Department of Jobs, um, Department of Justice in terms of what people's experiences on the ground and particularly getting letters from those community leaders from, you know, the Islamic um, Women's Association of Victoria and um, the Nepalese Students Group who don't have Job Seeker or Job Keeper. Um, and they're a group of 450 plus students spread across three LGAs. That's really challenging to um, address that hardship. And we don't, we've probably got the capacity of 100, 150 meals max if we scale up incrementally, not 450. So there's still some structural inequalities in the system in terms of social and environmental justice and ecological justice in getting those, getting the support services to those people as well so it is different for, for each demographic and each and each individual too but um some you know homeless elderly men we serve they're having a great time because it's their first time in accommodation they're having you know hot meals they're they're getting their sheets changed every day they're warm and they're having an incredible time but the people that live in isolated um 
social groups are really struggling at the time. And yeah, there's a few different things we have to navigate with those groups too. What we've also found is a level of resilience amongst these extremely vulnerable people um, that is, is worth discussing and worth, um, worth noting. Uh, today in the age, uh, Dr. Michelle um, Ananda Raja said this really quite um, uh, simple but profound um, comment, which is this virus exploits vulnerability. It will seek out the weakest points in your society. And that's what it's done in our experience in the city of Moreland. It has sought out the weakest points and made them doubly um, um, impacted um, um, by the difficulties of being restricted in your movement and the difficulties in relating to other people and getting help, uh, getting transport, getting assistance. So uh, traditionally, uh, our hub addresses disadvantage through environmental means, teaching, advocating and showcasing some of the composting and waste to energy systems that we operate up in Brunswick, teaching woodwork, mushroom growing and cooking, etc. But because the agencies that we related to uh, effectively collapsed in their serviceability, their ability to service their community in March, they lost their volunteers, they had to close their soup kitchens and feeding stations, etc., and distribution points. We seemed to be, to be the only organisation um, um, in our region of Brunswick that had volunteers who could drive and a kitchen and a kitchen garden uh, that would provide food and, and where we could prepare meals. And so we moved to this distribution of meals process from the last week of April. But over the last few weeks, we've found that our recipients have asked for um, seeds to grow their own uh, vegetables or, or uh, fruits and we've actually started as Stuart just said distributing fruit boxes uh, um, polystyrene fruit boxes full of seed raising mix that we've made up ourselves and our own harvested seeds for people to start growing food for themselves um, there is a, a sort of gritty resilience amongst these very vulnerable people that's impressive um, they're doing things for themselves once they've been given the confidence to um, ask for for help, um, and that seems to have um, uh, been us in many situations because we're regularly um, meeting them and um, asking them what they need. Um, so uh, the the mental strain on these people is notable and it's visible to us. Um, but funnily enough, they're talking to us about that mental strain and everyone is in the, in the community and on social media and elsewhere. Uh, but what I think is notable is the amount of discussion from these people about how upset and how uh, disadvantaged they feel or how isolated they feel. And although that doesn't overcome the isolation, we all know um, uh, as Beyond Blue will tell us uh, talking about this and discussing it openly is one of the pathways to managing mental illness appropriately. And I think the other thing for me it's really highlighted is how, you know, human connection and relationship is at the base of Maslow's hierarchy. It's not at the second or third tier. It's very fundamental 
to who we are as as people is connecting, checking in. And I think on the other side of this pandemic, we're going to value human relationships a lot from a different point of view and we're not going to disregard them or um, as I think we got all caught up or too busy to catch up. It's going to be really essential to, it's been the resiliency point of what we've been able to practice at the Ecological Justice Hub is to provide those um, relationships and connections and checking points, not only for staff, but for the volunteers and the community members um, and, and those people suffering at the hard ends of this cruel virus and the shutdown as well and really struggling not being able to get legal rights, not being able to get um, job keeper or job seeker because they're asylum seekers or refugee. It's made those things really tough. People who are getting by in the gig economy have got no income and they've been pushed back onto support services or pushed onto the meal program. And, you know, we've got a, a little bit of a vision in how to get that off. So through, through training people, you know, as the lockdown eases, getting people back into the hub, growing their food, cooking their food and bringing them along on the journey um, with us so we can enrich them with skills and, and their story sets and also learn from their hardship as well. So it's a, a very much a two-way, it's um, two-way conversation. It's not necessarily a charity set up, it's a justice organisation, so the distribution of fairness. And I think that's, we really embody that as a team here um, and in, in our practice and in our culture too, we really help um, lift people up and out and just say, you know, how are you going? Have a really good check-in and some amazing relationships have, uh, have developed between the callers and the drivers and the participants. And we've built a lot of trust and connection and that's allowed the conversation to develop over the last few months as well. Do it. Um, and Michael, I just had a question to follow up from that. First off, the work that you're doing for these communities is sounds absolutely essential. And um, I really thank you, you know, for doing that sort of work because it's so important. I, I wanted to ask, I guess, a bit of a selfish question here because resilience was one of the topics that I was asked to write about and the whole text was, was about. And it seems that you and particularly what Michael was saying, you've noticed the resilience of these communities. And Stuart, it sounds like you're touching on the importance of sort of human connection and human relationships and sort of group support networks. Could you, both of you give us an opinion as to what you think is the most important uh, factor for building resilience, you know, particularly ones that would apply to, you know, everyone in this call, but also based on your experiences within these, helping these communities and obviously seeing resilience, resilience grow within them. Yes. Yeah. Re a good question. Real re resilience comes from being able to manage knockbacks um, and many Groups in our society uh, are always being knocked back. They've always, they're always disadvantaged. They're always the last in the queue. They're always the least likely to be able to get transport or um, healthy food or get access to the resources that others get access to. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the value of that experience it, um, shows up in times of crisis like this, where those people who are have been disadvantaged all their lives, actually show great capacity for resilience, and um, and um, it's it, it's magnified where those people realise that they have other members of the community that want to um, work with them 
and share with them and uh, help them. Um, help them help themselves, which is certainly part of the philosophy of Jesuit social services. Um, teach people networks, teach pe uh, provide people with skills and opportunities rather than doing it for them uh, ourselves. Help them learn more skills and, and develop more um, networks to do it for themselves. So their sort of innate resilience um, it is very easily um, uh, um, brought out by uh, the helping hand that organisations like uh, ours and others can provide at these times. And I think I would I would add to that, Michael. It's it's also it's also a value. Um, seeing resilience is a value that comes out of experience as well. And, you know, a definition of wisdom is to learn from other people's experience. And we can drop into that, that group wisdom, if you like, or communication by hearing someone's story as well and saying we value your story too. And that's something we do really well at Jesuit Social Services. We, we push these stories straight up to, um, you know, to a ministerial level to say, look, this is the reality on the ground because they articulate it so well. But it's, it's seeing that as a silver lining in the cloud too, like out of this hardship and the hardship I've been through in my career, in my life as well, which has been quite extraordinary. I've been able to value and cherish, you know, the relationships I've had a lot more and value the resiliency that I know that will come out of this personal and professional and community hardship too. And out of that resiliency comes value, comes compassion, comes benevolence, comes connection, comes authenticity, comes listening, comes amazing communications, friendships, all these really fundamental things we cherish. That's what, that's the silver lining to what comes out of holding resiliency as a value that comes out of hardship too. So it is a growing process and all, you know, and, and it is painful for what the world's going through at a global level and at a mental health level in our local communities. But to um, see how our participants or the people that engage with us hold that as a value and see them grow as the week's going and they're just lighting up at these meals we're delivering to them or the connections and, in conversations we're having. And I think that's the light that holds us through the present moment. It's not what we do in lockdown, it's how we hold that value now and how that holding that value will see us through the storm. And flipping across, knowing the audience is, uh, is a legal audience, flipping across to mental health in the legal profession, uh, what I found as the regulator and the handler of complaints against lawyers were that, um, that most mistakes and complaints arising out of legal practice um, don't come from um, um, innate incompetence or dishonesty. They come from mistakes made in the way in which uh, dis they, uh, lawyers make decisions about their clients' affairs, about the way they communicate, and about the, the way in which they... Um, they conduct themselves and um, Jessica would know very much as many of you would uh, about the Tristan Jepson Foundation which I had a lot to do with as uh, the Legal Services Commissioner because that was really beyond blue for lawyers 
Um, and it was about the way in which um, um, the open discussion and the anticipation of mental ill health um, is such an important part of um, running a legal service or operating a, a, a place of employment um, or a university or a teaching organisation, anticipating that mental health uh, issues are extremely common, very manageable, and once those uh, issues are, are addressed appropriately and in a healthy way, the, uh, um, it, it has a, a minimising impact on mistakes being made in, in, um, in professional life. Hi, yeah, can I add on to that? Is that all right? Can I jump in? Um, do. I think, yeah, one of the things that's really interesting, there's so many parallels that can be drawn. Oh, I haven't actually mentioned, so I work as a doctor in an intensive care unit. That's my day job. Um, <laughs> the, um, one of the really interesting things um, that we know about, particularly the medical profession as well as the legal profession, um, is that the degree of self-stigma in both of those professions is huge. And that that means that um, even, even when we did, you know, in the surveys look at um, what the actual peer stigma was, it was a lot lower than people's perceived peer stigma. So people think that everyone else will think less of them. And one of the worst statistics in the Beyond Blue survey was that... Um, that uh, a really significant proportion of people felt like um, if they had a mental illness, then their peers would think they were a, a bad doctor, um, which is really problematic when you're talking about trying to disclose. Um, and also when you know that, that um, having to disclose any history of mental illness when you're you know, uh, applying for jobs or applying for you know, college, for us, for specialty college registration, um, and then also we have mandatory reporting obligations, which are very controversial in the medical profession because it means that um, if you were to tell anyone that you had a mental illness, um, then if then that other medical practitioner could, in misinterpreting the obligation, believe that they had an obligation to disclose um, to APRA that you have a mental illness. So as you can imagine, that framework does not support people accessing help. Um, it means also that a number of doctors just won't see a psychologist at all because even the fact that they have could potentially come up later. Um, so I think that there's a lot of parallels between those two professions where the one of the most effective interventions that I've seen has been um, like a championship model. So where they, in the medical profession at least, they um, got a, a number of senior medical leaders to talk about their own battles with mental ill health. Um, and we're able to show that, you know, you can have, you know, Jeff Toogood is remarkable. He's a very, very senior cardiologist at Frankston Hospital um, who talks openly about his own suicidality. And so, you know, if you're a more junior person in your career and you're thinking, you know, this means I'm never going to get anywhere, to see people like that, you know, who have been through it come out the other side and being profoundly successful, I think is remarkable. So I think it, as much as we try to make change at the at the grassroots level, um, I think there's a really important role for senior leaders in the legal profession to come forward and talk about their own kind of battles with mental ill health, as well as creating space. And that's a, you know, a, a, not a small cultural change, um, but creating space that um, it's okay to talk about it. And I think the first step is, you know, recognising that mental ill health is a continuum, that there's almost everyone has a bad day um, and that that exists right through to, you know, significant clinical mental illness. 
And that's certainly the modus operandi of, um, G, of Tristan G, uh, Jepson Foundation, which is to bring mm. partners of law firms out to talk about their mental health, just as you're saying with mm. the, in, your, in your profession. What the Legal Services Board, the regulator, did um, in my time back in 2010 was to declare that it was not compulsory for lawyers to provide disclosure um, of a mental health condition in order to renew their license every year, if that was being managed or was not impacting on their capacity to perform legal services. And that had a huge um, a relieving effect on lawyers from being fearing that they were sitting on a, a, a terribly big secret that they had not disclosed and that they, there was something wrong with them in the way they were practicing law. And having declared that they no longer had to reveal that, um, I think we did a lot of good as a as a regulator. Mm. That's a huge win. We've been, I mean, been lobbying. Western Australia has more progressive um, mandatory reporting requirements, um, but the other states, you know, and the, um, there's been huge pushback. Uh, I think because people are just afraid that, you know, if you take away the mandatory reporting obligations, then you'll have unwell doctors practicing, which we know is not really the experience. No, and what I found is that both the licensor of lawyers and the complaints investigator as commissioner, the licensor had very, very few people who ever revealed every year that they were suffering a mental condition. But as soon as I investigated the misbehaviour of a lawyer, mm. the first thing they said was, well, I've been depressed for months or for years. And so addressing that issue was much more important than addressing the wrongdoing because once the... Um, mental health um, condition is managed properly and, and accepted and, and not judged, the behaviours take care of themselves. Well, it's also preventative, isn't it? If you could, yeah. you know, if you could remove that obstacle to access earlier um, and people could, you know, seek help for their illness earlier, then maybe you wouldn't get the, you know, the issues in their practice and you wouldn't yeah. end up with these complaints, ideally. Um, it's a real shame that it has to be kind of so um, reactive. True. So I might now ask a personal question to you all. Um, considering you're all essentially, you know, at the coalface of much of other people's problems, both mental and physical health, how do you all maintain good mental health? What, what uh, um, strategies did you adopt and could you recommend? I'm well, happy to well, start. The, the well, way I maintain my mental health is, is, um, is staying fit, eating nutritious food. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier if you're lucky um, and, uh, and comfortable. Um, if you're unlucky and uncomfortable, uh, it's very depressing. Um, but there's a big difference between in environmental conditions that make you feel de depressed, uh, like this lockdown, and clinical anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar, and, and other conditions. And so it's very easy for me to see to say to you how I manage my mental health, because I, I don't suffer from any clinical condition, uh, which is uh, a bit more challenging not impossible and very treatable, but um, quite a different story in, in that situation. And I can't, I can't 
describe that because I haven't been through it. Yeah, I think that's it's a really interesting question. It's quite a, uh, a an individual one as well. Like different things work for different people as well. So I've supported a lot of people through recovery, through mental illness, as all what, and also struggling with my own mental health along, you know, with depression and anxiety too. And that it, it, it's a values you hold in life that see you through those hard times. So valuing friendship, valuing connection, and finding meaning in the everyday as well, um, as well as you know doing the base baseline things like exercise and nutrition, which gets tough when you get depressed because it makes you feel isolated and disconnected too. And that's the danger of this lockdown. It, it really exacerbates people who are prone to depression to going down that that road to who might not have previously experienced it and it is a very complex um, condition for want for a better term um, but it, it's an individual experience and it, it needs to be normalized and brought out into the open and and it, and it shouldn't be judged and it, and it cannot be judged because that's not not helpful it's not it, it's no way helps the situation it makes it worse it's got to be these conversations have to be normalised in every workplace. And I, I'd normalise them in the workplace here. I say, look, if you're here to show up, show up and, and be who you are. But if you have to go home for a mental health day, that's fine. Like, we're here to, to support you through whatever you do. So I think, you know, there's insights that come from depression and anxiety as well too, um, which I'm deeply grateful for, having the experience and gratitude to, to navigate me through those really tough times in my life. Um, so it's, it's having that, that value system and out of the other side of depression and anxiety comes this extraordinary character resilience to stress and to be able to cope under pressure and to be able to have a good time under pressure and just to be able to laugh the menial off that would otherwise stress people that haven't had the gift of depression too. And being more present with you know, who you are and your friends and connecting with them, it makes you value those little moments of light and happiness throughout the day as well. And I think that's what brings us together in these moments. It's like this this is a really, really um, hard time for not only globally, locally and personally, but we can all bond together through this, you know, kind of um, global grieving, if you like, but there is always a silver lining to that crowd. And it goes back to building community resilience and compassion for the other two, because we're all experiencing this together. And I think, that's the insight I'd like to share from my experience with um, depression, depression and anxiety is just holding those values and finding meaning in the day-to-day. That was beautiful, Stuart. Thank you so much. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. Jessica, maybe you can um, lead on from that. The hard one to follow. My goodness, Stuart, that was excellent. Um, yeah, no, I think, um, I think, I mean, Stuart hit the nail on the head there. It's... Um, the I think it's important emphasizing that it's really individual um that there's I think of it as um it's important I guess to differentiate between um burnout and um you know kind of subclinical anxiety or feeling low um as Michael pointed out um as distinct from more clinical depression or anxiety I think that um we all have an active role in um supporting good mental health you know, the mental health is not this binary between well and unwell. You know, you can have better mental health and you can have 
mental illness and they're on this huge, very complicated spectrum um, that we all kind of, you know, fluctuate between. So um, I think the first step is actually making it a personal priority. So recognising that it requires, like anything else in your life, investment. You know, if, if you want to get good grades in law school, you have to put in time. You have to be deliberate about it and conscientious of it. You know, if you want to have good mental health, then, you know, you do need to invest in yourself in, you know, exercising regularly and, and you know, making downtime, whatever that means for you, and sleeping appropriately. You know, it, it, they seem like really obvious things. And when you're unwell, they're really challenging things. Um, but they are very protective. I think an important learning for me um, came when I realised that I actually hate television. It's a, it's a really simple and silly thing. But, you know, I had all these, you know, mentors or, you know, um, like clinicians or even kind of you know, clinical or what's your academic, you know, your um, tutors and stuff who would be like, but when do you watch TV? Um, so for years, I thought that this was the downtime, that everyone just watches TV. And my dirty little secret is that I actually hate TV. Um, I find it really unenjoyable. And so for me, it was a matter of trying to find something that was downtime, that did kind of you know, allow me to reset and, you know, was sufficiently mindful, but um, not... Um, like not in any way draining. And so that's been a challenge. And so the last probably 10 years I've been working on trying to find the right hobby, um, but it's really important. And so I kind of keep at it. Sewing's pretty good. I quite like sewing, <laughs> playing with my dog. But um, I think it's just important to recognise that, you know, it's not the same for everyone. And sometimes doing something that seems like downtime, for instance, watching movies or Netflix, um, actually may not fulfil that purpose for you. That if it's not refilling your cup and making you feel more energised and more ready to take on other things, then that's not the downtime that you need. Then you need something else. And it's also a form of numbing, watching TV and Netflix and, you know, even drinking coffee because you haven't had a good night's sleep. That will affect the next night's sleep. Alcohol is a form of numbing, numbing that's culturally encouraged, which is really unhealthy for mental health and people prone to depression will have a bad night's sleep and that will exacerbate their, their next day's experience and it snowballs and snowballs. So numbing through the cultural normities we've got is really unhealthy for our basic level of anxiety, depression, social cohesion, and checking in and connecting with ourselves. And also working above our capacity and above our, our, our barriers and boundaries, that exacerbates stress, and stress is a huge risk factor for anxiety and depression. And that's just a natural human reaction too. And I think there's been, you know, it's for getting through these hard times, we've got to forgive ourselves for being human too. And that's, that's a beautiful feeling just to lean into that as well. Just forgive ourselves. It's, it's natural and it's healthy to have these um, reactions. So don't, don't judge yourself harshly because um, just, and, and learning to forgive yourself is, is um, one of the more beautiful lessons you can learn out of it too. Can I just absolutely emphasize that the last thing that Stuart said, uh, you know, that was actually the one comment I wanted to leave on was if you're struggling to look at things from a higher perspective and you're struggling to implement these things that might seem really hard, like, you know, even just eating breakfast or staying off coffee or, or 
trying to implement these rituals, if you're finding those hard, make sure that the first thing you're doing is to just forgive yourself for having feelings like that because everyone's human and everyone's going to be having those feelings. And if you're blaming yourself for being sad, don't bother because everyone, everyone has to deal with these feelings at some point or other. And moving from a place of forgiveness, understanding that, you know, you're not weaker than anyone else that you know um, for waking up and feeling sad or feeling unmotivated. And then, you know, moving from that place of forgiveness to a place of what's the best thing that I can do today to help myself that's within my own capabilities, not holding yourself to any objective standards that you might have created in your mind based on the role models you have, but understanding that you can only ever do your best and that just has to be good enough. So um, thank you so much to everyone who participated in this talk. I think I certainly learned a lot and I certainly got a lot from it, which is really, really awesome. I might give it to Tristan to see if he wanted to, for our last four minutes, maybe put in a, a, a um, question from our audience or how he wanted to end that. I think that's a great idea. So I think um, just touching or expanding on that point about self-blame, um, we have a, a question that relates to that from uh, a a good member of our audience, Paul, who's asked, during the Great Depression, a common attitude of the newly unemployed was that it was all their fault that they had failed to live up as their family breadwinner. How can we challenge this attitude when it returns during this economic crisis? Sorry, maybe everyone can just speak like 30 seconds on this, 30 seconds to a minute on this question so we can finish on time. I think that uh, maybe I'll start. I think this has a lot to do with identity, um, which is really problematic. I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for creating and trying to establish a, a new identity for individuals. Um, law students, you know, are definitely in the category of type A personalities who, you know, definitely view themselves, medical students are the same, <laughs> um, that they definitely, you know, see themselves and, um, see their value in you know, the grades that they get and how they perform. And so the classic example that we see in both professions is you know, when law students or medical students fail something for the first time ever, then their whole world collapses. Um, and the reason for that is because they've so deeply tied their sense of identity um, to them as a really good student. When in reality, we're much more complex and diverse like, than that. And I think, um, you know, we know, for instance, that men in um, relationships where heterosexual, so in um, heterosexual uh, married relationships, um, males who earn less than their female counterparts overall have a lower sense of happiness. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, traditional patriarchal ideas about being a breadwinner. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot to be done in breaking down a lot of these um, quite unhelpful identities, um, you know, that, for instance, you need to make money to have value in society. Um, and I think that that comes from, like, like all other stigma, that comes from, you know, <laughs> lots of hard work and behavioural change and, you know, social ideas is, you know, a really hard beast to tackle. So... It takes time, it takes transparency, and it takes dialogue, and it won't happen overnight. But I think unless we try to, you know, target what's at the core of these issues, um, we're not going to have a lot of success. And, and also, I'd add to that, just challenging cultural norms as well, and where that question's been asked from, um, too, because it is a question that is kind of accepted, but it's not an appropriate question at all, and it's not a helpful question, too. 
And, you know, I get asked a lot of those questions from my own family, but I'm like, that's not helping for me. So I don't need to answer that because it's not a, it's not a good question, but these are normalities we've really got to challenge and bring out of the dark as well. And as much like from a similar type of place where that question's been asked, well, there's a lot more helpful questions too we can ask of ourselves too but it's that's the other thing it's really it's really bringing up the the lockdown they're bringing really bringing those issues to light for a lot of a lot of the people in the team and and what we're experiencing here at the hub given the lateness of the hour i've got nothing more to contribute to those two fabulous responses <laughs> very succinct michael <laughs> Um, thank you so much to everyone um, for making this discussion really special. Um, I hope everyone had a really good time. I would suggest that if you haven't already, you um, subscribe to the PLN through LinkedIn and Facebook and their other platforms because um, all their events are really great.